My name is Joshua Edward Wright. I was imprisoned in Portland, Oregon, United States for 50 months. And during that time, I realized that not a lot of people know what we go through. So what I will be offering is personal narrative in the hope that the listener will be able to realize the validity of the statement that no human being belongs in a cage. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, The Exiled Voice. Today I have with me Damien. Damien, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, hi, I'm uh, Damien Lenane. I'm 34. I'm from Sydney, Australia. I currently live in Newcastle, which is a couple hours north of there. I was drive and I spent 10 months in prison uh, beginning at the end of 2015. Thank you so much for being on the show. If you want to go through with the, for the audience, basically how your arrest was, you know, kind of that transition from the outside world to that, you know, the life of kind of a prison, you just, and anything related to how that process was of, of the arrest, and we'd love to hear it. I've done quite a few podcasts and no one's actually ever actually asked about that before. So I'm happy to talk about it. Um, the police came and actually got me while I was at work. Um, I had two jobs prior to being arrested. I was in Australia's equivalent of um, the National Guard, but I also had a day job um, working as a, like a medical orderly at a hospital. And I had a feeling I was about to be arrested, like the walls were kind of closing in. And I'd taken a patient down to x-ray and I was waiting for them. And the police called me and they said they wanted to speak to me to come in and answer some questions. And I was like, um, oh, okay, I know what this is about. And um, they said, oh, by the, like, are, are you at work? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm at, I'm at work. And they said, all right, we'll just come by after work. And um, little did I know they were actually just trying to establish where I was so they could come and get me. And so then I was down taking this patient to x-ray and um, a nurse stuck her head around the door and she said, um, is your name Damien? And as soon as she said that, I knew the police were out there waiting for me. Um, it, it was uh, like the arrest that led to my imprisonment. That was my first conviction. I was um, ironically arrested like um, uh, about four months prior to that. Um, I wasn't convicted. So, I mean, I, uh, I had a bit of an understanding of what was going to happen. Yeah, I was uh, taken into custody and interviewed and all that. But um, I um, police tried to deny me bail. Um, but my lawyer um successfully argued for me to be released so i mean i was only there overnight and um yeah from there i'm really glad that happened because um uh, it's my understanding in some other countries you can uh kind of be sentenced and then like yeah your sentence is going to start later so give you some time to get your affairs in order we, we don't have that in the state of new south wales where i am so and because i don't have a lot of family that would have put me in a like um a really difficult position trying to organize, you know, get my affairs in order. So, so, um, yeah, I was really, um, lucky I got bail and I was on bail for four months before I was sentenced. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a whole, I could go off and talk on so many tangents there, but, uh, yeah, I was, um, it was actually a really interesting experience. I kind of, I didn't know what my sentence was going to be, whether I was going to get a, um, a community sentence or, or like three years I actually worked on kind of like a bucket list. It was actually like one of the best, like, you know, four months of my life. But uh, yeah, that was um, my arrest and bail experience, I guess. That makes me kind of think about my story in particular is, is what the police did to try to figure out where I was when they arrested me as well. I was uh, going to college at the time uh, in Eugene, Oregon, United States, and 
they called me after I had tried to get possessions back from my ex. They were like, you, you know, I heard you tried to get your possessions back. Do you need some help with that? Do you want us to come and help you get your stuff back? And I said, I actually um, asked you guys probably like a week or a month ago um, if, if you could kind of have like an officer come with me because I didn't feel safe. And you guys said no. So why are you wanting to help me now? And they're like, oh, we just changed our mind. And, you know, just tell us where you're at and we can help you. I'm like, I could, I, I knew that something like was going on. This is weird, but it's like, I can't, I can't run from anything. Yeah. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm at, you know, I'm at the student housing complex and they came with like three officers with guns drawn. Uh, that might be a different thing in America. I would assume we came into a student housing complex with an assault rifle, a shotgun and a, a pistol, a revolver uh, pointed at, at students. And I kind of did the same thing. Like immediately they came out of the elevator like that and pointed a bunch of guns at, at, at students, including myself. And people were like freaking out and like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know, but I think they're here for me. And I went out and like in front of the students and it was like, hey, man, I'm pretty sure you're here for me. You don't need to like point those guns. And that was probably the scariest moment of my life because in America, their police are known for just like opening fire. I mean, we have the same overall like problems with, um, you know, in, in Australia, as you do in like most first world, first world countries, you know, the police are just a protective force that, you know, maintains the interests of the wealthy, et cetera. But um, like we watch what happened, like what the US police do, like it makes the news over here and oh, like we just can't believe it. Like you'd, um, you get fired for pointing a gun at a, at a student in Australia, like, no question. So I'm um, like... Uh, like in Australia, you need a like the equivalent of like an associate degree in policing, become a police officer, and that. I mean, we we do have you know violent police and all that, but um, but like yeah, not it's nowhere near the level at at America. Like um, very rarely are there shootings of any kind. Or also that's because you know um you know most guns are, are banned <laughs> over here, so it's very hard to get um something Americans tend to find fascinating is like an AK forty seven has a street value in Australia of about 25,000 US dollars because they're so hard to get get guns in into this country. But uh, yeah, so like there's not a lot of shootings, but you know, can't imagine what that was like. You know, like, um, like I was arrested and um, uh, like I remember that they didn't even put me in handcuffs. And one, one of the police, uh, the detectives, he actually said to me, he's like, you're not going to try and run, are you? And, and I, I said to him and I just like completely like, um, uh, like, you know, monotone, kind of like factual. Like, I, I, um, like, I, I really don't think that would improve my situation. And, um, yeah, like running never crossed my mind. I'm like, I couldn't think of anything like, you know, prison. Uh, I didn't want to go to prison, but I couldn't like, yeah, if, if there was one thing worse than that, it was going to be living life on the run. I, I can't imagine why anyone would ever want to do that, you know? So I was just like, all right, this is, the walls have been closing in. I kind of thought this was happening. And so this is going to happen and I've just got to face it really. Yeah. That was kind of the decision that was going through my mind when I realized that phone call was not what they were saying it was. It's like, mm -hmm. do I want to live a life on the run because I will have to, or I can just like, you know what? I know this this isn't what you guys are doing. You're not going to help me, but I have to accept that. And it's it's a really weird position to be in. But going off of that a little bit, going kind of further, you know, how was it going into prison for you? And you know, what what are the the kinds of things that you did? to kind of learn about the system in order to keep yourself safe and kind of learn how to do time. 
people like, you know, I, I actually um, just finished my undergraduate degree. Um, I actually finished it while I was on bail. So I finished, it was only actually like a couple of weeks before I went in. I, I actually approached my um, lecturer and I said, hey, um, I'm up for sentencing. Can you bring my exam forward? And he, he, he was actually nice enough to do that. So, um, yeah, like I went into prison and people would start talking to me. And as, as soon as I opened my mouth, people were like, where are you from? Why are you here? Like, I, I, I'm, you know, it was very obvious. You know, I was, well, you know, I don't want to sound like an elitist, but I was well-spoken and educated and people realised I wasn't a career criminal, like straight away. And um, people kept saying like, oh, how are you coping with this? Your first time and everything. And I'd spent um, like over five, about five and a half years in the military and um so I was used to very strict rules. I was used to being sent away for, you know, I was never sent overseas to a war. I, um, I volunteered to fight in Afghanistan, with, and I'm kind of glad they didn't pull me up because, you know, we only had um, Australia's commitment to the war was like 1,500 soldiers. And, you know, so the, the chance of me being called up was, uh, was, was very low. But um, I did get sent on like support tasks all the time, you know, two months here, three months there, trying training people. And so I was kind of used to, uh, an environment where there's you know no internet like um you, you you cut off from the real world and it's very strict and like you know yeah everything you're always watched all the time and, and so, so forth and um so i didn't actually find um like people kept saying you know like how are you coping i'm like this is easier than being in the army it, it's more frustrating you know i don't get to go home on the weekends but it, like day to day like weekdays it, it was um i didn't find it too bad um I mean, it was obviously, you know, um, <laughs> didn't want to be there either, but like um, it was, um, I was getting therapy while I was on bail and I actually said to my therapist, I'm like, is there something wrong with me? I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to go to jail, but if anything, I'm a little bit excited because, and um, because, you know, I've, this is a whole new world. And she actually said to me, she's like, no, I mean, that's an atypical response, but I mean, I'm not concerned. There is that public curiosity. And so, I mean, I, um, I uh, like didn't do too badly. I um I have looked into the um prison systems around the world, and uh, for what it's like, well, like you know, you're probably aware, like America has an in, uh, incarceration rate that's like seven times higher than the next country, and it, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, Australia is more middle of the line. However, um, like a lot of like even first world countries, we have like a really poor like education or rehabilitation systems, like um. I've been told it's relatively easy, to, for example, to get your GED in American prison. Um, not so, not over here. Like uh, there's, there's really limited opportunities to study. And I wanted to start a master's degree. I was like, hey, I went, went to sentencing and I, and, um, I was like, all right, well, uh, worst case scenario, I go to jail and I can start my degree somewhere, you know, where I can, I've got lots of free time. And um, I quickly found out that I couldn't do that. Um, they didn't have computer, like they, they had a computer room, but due to budget cuts, it was only open two hours a week. And that's not, not enough to do a master's degree. And I was also told that I, um, there was no funding for therapy in minimum security, which is where I eventually got assessed to. I, I was on like, um, in, I was in the remand wing for a while waiting to be assessed uh, a few uh, two and a half, three weeks or something. And, um, but uh, once I got to minimum security, they're like, oh, yeah, you're the low risk offenders. There's, there's, there's no therapy for you. You're actually being assessed as too low risk for rehabilitation. So not only do you not have to do any courses, you're not even eligible to do them if you want to. So um, I did start panicking a couple of weeks in when I found out there was like, 
I couldn't study and there was nothing constructive for me to do. But uh, like I said, I um I had, had a very good attitude. So I was like, all right, all right, Damien, like this is this is hopefully um a once in a lifetime opportunity. And what can you do to get out of that? So um I'd had this idea for a novel in my head for years and I'd never made the time because life got in the way. And um I spent the first five months of my sentence writing this novel, which has now been published. And I spent the second five months teaching myself to draw. And I, now I actually do um, photorealistic portraits as a bit of a side hustle. It was my side hustle in prison and it still is now. And I, I actually had a meeting today with a local art gallery. They want to um, put me on to um, having a third solo ex exhibition. And my, my theme is actually former prisoners. So I've drawn like portraits of like um, people who've been to jail, like um, yeah, Danny Trejo, Robert Downey Jr., Malcolm X, et cetera. And um, yeah, that's going to be my next exhibition. So I, I do really think I got a I don't see prison overall as a negative experience. I, I got a lot of you know, positive things out of it. I can really relate to people saying like, what are you doing here? Because um, I've always had the ability to articulate really well, you know, uh, opinions, thoughts, um, education in relating stories and other things. And people constantly ask me like, you don't, like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Yes, I got um, that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, you're not like us, like things like that. But also, you know, I, I kind of really admire the, the realization that you have to work on yourself when there's nothing else around and available. Because um, it's, it's easy to just, you know, let that be kind of a failure and give up and um, kind of let the time consume you. You know, it's it's a different kind of mindset to be able to overcome that, you know, and, and progress and grow as a person and, and get things done and be productive. So I, I admire that you were able to do that. I guess one thing that I wanted to kind of ask further is you just described prison as kind of like not that negative of experience. And of course, there's differences in the Australian system and the American prison industrial complex. But I remember kind of having a similar mindset, but at the same time realizing that like it wasn't prison that did that. It wasn't the environment. It was like I did that myself with what prison yes, allowed yeah. me to do. So I was just wondering if, if you kind of, you know, agree with that because it's it's a weird thing for me to say because it's not really the prison that did it. It's like we did that. You know yeah, mean? no, exactly. Like I am, um, and I sp spoke to like, you know, I, I mostly hung out with, people I identified with more like, so more, more like, you know, people who are, were like me and kind of got a, put in a position that could have happened to everyone and reacted badly and, you know, kind of made one mistake kind of thing. And um, I, uh, yeah, as we used to say, you know, you, you can rehabilitate prison for, you know, for lack of a better word, but, you know, you, you kind of have to do it yourself because they're not interested in helping you. And um, the, the two most depressing things I found in prison, number one was the lack of resources for rehabilitation and education. But, Number two, uh, the second most depressing thing was actually that um, even if there were um, like, you know, um, resources like that, you know, two thirds of the inmates wouldn't have been interested in them. Like uh, we only had short courses at the prison I was at. I was, uh, I was sent to a working camp prison. It was essentially a, a lumber yard and um, they ran chainsaw um, certificates and, for, and forklift courses. Both, both of these are like two day courses in, in, in Australia. And um I went and did the forklift course, uh, even though I was pretty sure I was never going to use it. But, uh, but you know, it was a free course, you know, that, that cost several hundred dollars on the outside. And I went and put my name down for it. Sure enough, I got a spot. Um, and that reason I got a spot was because, uh, you know, they only had 12 spots available and they couldn't even fill 10 of them. You know, I think I, I think I was number nine or number 10, like once I signed up. And uh, 
And I actually tried to talk a guy in my blog. I was like, oh, hey, man, you know, there's a free spot on the forklift course, you know, you know, eight, you know several hundred dollars of free training. And he was like, no, nah, man, I, I need to find smokes. I need to, you know, that, that was his priority for the day was finding smokes. They actually banned tobacco in um, Australia, in, in New South Wales, in the state I'm in, um, just a couple of months before I went in. Uh, which and of course all that did was create a black market trade for tobacco um and then pe when people can't get tobacco they resort to smoking things like tea leaves and uh, you know it was um yeah it's like that was it was just such like an epiphany of like um this is what's wrong with the system overall like instead of trying to address the root cause let's just make it illegal and see what happens and yeah there's another tangent to go down but um yeah, there was uh, definitely a feeling like um, if I wanted to get something out of prison, I had to do it myself. And um, I'm quite proud that I managed to do that. Like, um, yeah, I, I give a lot of talks about, I'm actually booked to give a live talk about the experience of writing um, a novel in prison uh, just in a couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, I've, I've done that a lot. And um, yeah, I, I've kind of turned it into a brand, I, I guess. I was, um, when I first got arrested, there was a lot of like, uh, you know, very biased publicity about me. And uh, one of the ways I went, like when you when you Google me now, um, though those things aren't even on page one anymore because I've replaced them with all these like, you know, reviews of my book and, and then talks I've given and stuff. Yeah, I just had to try and, all right, this happened. So let's try and spin it into a positive. That's exactly the same mindset I had is, well, I edited a bit more time in like the first year that I was in prison. I was just angry at like the system and I was blaming like the judge and, and people like that, the district attorney that sentenced me, you know, different things like that. And I started to realize like, this isn't helping me and this isn't doing anything. Mm. And over time, I just started to be like, you know what, I'm going to prove every single person wrong that like this, I didn't do anything. And, and none of these, none of those things like are, are me, like encompass who I am. And, you know, I have, I have so much more depth than, than a burglary charge. And, and then I started doing things like I, I, I co-founded Liberation Literacy with an outside volunteer that was coming into the prison. And that, that's a group that focuses on racial justice and prison abolition. And then, you know, All Rise Magazine came into play. I named that and co-created it with some friends of mine who I did time with. And that's a magazine where all the people, um, all the content in it is by people who've done time or, or are still doing time. And then I, I co-founded the first gender and sexuality class in the Oregon Department of Corrections around the time that I released. And then since I got out, very similar to you, I tried to like go to, to go to talks and offer my, my experiences and my story to people that cared about, you know, what we go through. And there, there wasn't that many at the time, yeah. um, but there's, mm -hmm. there's starting to be a lot more now, especially with kind of the uprising of people wanting to know about this, these, this type of education and this alternative life, which, which wasn't prevalent that much when I got out, but it's it's becoming a lot easier to to share what I do and what I've done and who I am. And now, like like you said, when you when you search me, like it's it's mainly positive, and I'm really thankful and and humbled that I was able to do that in such a such a strange kind of negative environment by myself. Something that I have noticed is like because uh, the prison population in Australia is quite low. Like I, I think that maybe fifty thousand or something. And whereas you know in America there's like two million people just behind bars and another three million on probation or something. And, and but the the upside of that for you guys is there's a lot of resources like you know that we don't have things like JPay in Australia and like you know um all these ways to like you know like text and inmate and stuff and email and things. And uh, when I first went in there was no like um prison magazines or newsletters like aimed at prisoners 
And um, I've since, I, became, I was a contributor to, we, there was one that started up like kind of just as I was getting out. Uh, it's called Paper Chained. And um, for the last four or five years, I've been um, kind of working with the editor of that. Like, um, oh, like just every time that I like fundraising, I was helping on fundraising. And every time they have a new issue, not only was I submitting something myself, I was trying to find other inmates who were or ex-inmates who would submit things. And um, she, uh, the editor of that, um, she's just said that, you know, because of you know family commitments, she can't do it anymore. And she said, would I like to take it over? And um, the, I think it's the fourth, uh, or the fifth issue that's coming out very soon and after that issue comes out I'm taking over so I'll be the new editor of that and um, that's one of only two um, like prison newsletters in Australia that I'm aware of but um, both that one Paper Chained and the other one Inside Out which is um, aimed at LGBT inmates we, yeah, they both go worldwide as well so with, there's a few like um, American prisoners on the um, mailing list and stuff yeah this, this is going to be new for me soon but um or, or editing rather like you know I've, I've been helping with it a bit but uh yeah I definitely feel very passionate about like resources for inmates and waiters ways to help people still feel connected to the outside and give them a bit of you know a voice because uh that was um frustrating because I, I wrote that novel in there but I was also writing short stories and I had nowhere to send them and so you know that was part of the reason I was so interested in helping out with that magazine because uh yeah they, they were the um, I've, I've written several, I've worked, worked as a freelance journalist for a while, um, while I was doing my master's degree after I got out and, you know, I had my novel published, but yeah, they were actually the, the prison newsletter was the first people to publish something I'd written. So, um, now I'm just trying to pay it forward, I guess. Yeah. I'm doing the same thing. And, um, but I, I wrote poetry, I wrote short stories, kind of memoirish, um, type, type stories. And, and I had, I couldn't send them or show them or, or kind of read them to anybody. Um, there was no outlet for that. And I so badly wanted people to, you know, just tell me what they thought. Because, you know, the people that I was doing time with really resonated with it. And some of them, they're like, you know, this helped me think about things in a different way. Um, and so I just, when I got out, I was like, I need to, to offer some type of outlet. Because I just know how hard it was for me. Um, and I didn't want people to experience that thing you know, that same feeling if, if I could help it. But going off of that again a little bit is I, I do want to hear about, you know, how your release was. You talked about it a little bit, but, you know, just how that was for you kind of getting out of prison and going back to a life, um, what you had to do to kind of restart and, and how that is in Australia. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I remember like one of the, like, I had a lot of funny conversations in prison and I've actually just recently finished writing a memoir. I've just started sending it to publishers and stuff. But um, one thing I really recall in there is like when my parole was coming up and um, in, in New South Wales, if your parole is, if your sentence was less than three years, your parole is automatic. So, I mean, I knew I was getting it, but I had to go have the meeting and a guy in my block, he's like, oh, you're going to hate parole, man. It's so much harder than prison. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, oh man, they come around your house uh, unannounced, you know, that they, they do random drug tests. And I said, but, but I'm not planning on taking drugs or committing more crimes. And, and he was like, oh, oh, you'll probably be okay then. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> but um, like I, I did, I remember when I went to parole, like, um, cause yeah, I had a very interesting childhood. I don't have a lot of family, but the long, it's a long story, but the short story is I didn't have anywhere to go when I got out and I went into the parole and I said, look, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Um, I don't have anywhere to go. Does that mean I, I, I have to stay in? Um, and they're like, no, no, if you, you don't, a lot of people don't have anywhere to go. If um, we're obligated to find you a halfway house, but your choices are limited. Um, basically, would you like Sydney or Newcastle? Newcastle being the second biggest city in this state. And um, 
So that's where I chose. And um, like, cause I was used to going away with the army and then coming back like it. Um, I, I, I didn't take too long to, to adapt. Like um, in Australia, the, um, the prison uniforms are green. And I remember all my friends like, you'll never wear green again. And my best friend came to pick me up and she bought my green jacket and I just put it straight on. Like, I don't care. You know, like, you know, this doesn't remind me of prison. Um, something that was frustrating. I remember was, um, I've been told it's much harder to get a job with a criminal record in America. I mean, it's still harder here, but I was basically told that um, the one pl- people who will never give you a job is the government. You will never work in government again. This, the moment I got out, you know, it's, um, the, like what, what you'd call welfare, we call Centrelink. And um, yeah, so Centrelink were on my case straight away. Like you need to find a job. And I'm like, well, isn't this ironic? Um, the government wants me to get a job, but they're not going to give me one. And um, so I, I, I got lucky though. Um, basically, it's only like government or major corporations that would even ask if you have a criminal record. So like, you know, I've had um, like three or four jobs since I got out and um, only one of them asked and that was because he Googled me out of interest and uh, like the other ones like didn't even ask. And so, so I, I haven't found it too hard to get employment. Um, so I did settle back in reasonably well. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to, um, I remember because, you know, I wrote my book and then I taught myself to join. It was only after about eight months in that I was like, I really feel like I've, um, I've gotten everything I can, I can out of prison. I'd like to go now. But, you know, obviously it didn't work like that. But um, by, by the time I, was, I got out, I was ready to leave. Uh, but I was also ready to start like certain things like I wanted to start the master's degree. I couldn't do in there. So like, like I actually like enrolled in that like the day I got out. And so like, you know, I was studying straight away i was looking for work and thankfully i um found something fairly quickly so i i didn't struggle too much yeah i was a bit worried about employment and also um dating i um i did a friend of mine tried to like set me up with a friend very shortly after i got out and i um i don't really have secrets uh, i was planning on telling her i'd been to prison on a, like first or second date or something and um but uh but you know she she added me on facebook first and then she googled me and at the time the only thing that came up when you googled me was my arrest and like um i was arrested for burning down um uh, somebody in my family told me she'd been sexually assaulted and i went and burnt down the house of the guy who did that and uh but with the news coverage they didn't give any context um and like when i was assessed by the forensic psychiatrist they um they said I felt no remorse towards him, which I don't, and uh, you didn't, and still don't. And it also said um, my forensic psychiatrist put said I um I had harbored some some homicidal feelings towards sex offenders, which isn't too abnormal, and uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned. And but the newspaper just like kind of latched on that. They're like um the, the the title was like homicidal arsonist has no remorse or something, <laughs> and um, no context about why I did it at all. And I'm like, yeah, like she looked that up and uh, like, I actually said to our friend who sent me up, I'm like, I think she blocked me on Facebook. And my friend messaged me, she's like, she's like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm sorry. I tried to talk you up, but yeah, like um, that, that was thankfully the only bad experience. Like it's when I tell people what happened, they're like, um, people seem, some people don't approve, but people seem to, you know, not saying you should have done that, but, but I understand that that's like kind of like the worst reaction I get in person. Um, it's kind of interesting being in there. Like, um, I, I felt like I was the only person in the prison who was in for something that both all the guards and the inmates approved of. Sex offenders aren't very popular in Australia and I, and I assume they aren't in America either. And it was kind of funny. People were like, 
Damien are they? He's that weird, you know, uh, everyone assumed I was rich because I was educated. I, I you know, I, I got a scholarship, you know, my, my family was not well off at all, but everyone just assumed I was, I was well off because I was educated. And they're like, oh, Damien, he's that, that spoiled rich kid, but yeah, he, he burnt down a sex offender's home, leave him alone, you know? <laughs> but, um, that there have been some isolated incidents, like like I said, like you know that person who who just didn't even want to hear my story, like oh the newspaper said he's homicidal, so I'll stay away. Oh, but um, yeah, for the most part, it hasn't been too bad, thankfully, and I've been trying to spin it into a positive, and you know, doing activism and um, and speaking out about the prison system, and yeah, I got um I got some work as a freelance journalist, and how that happened was uh, a journalist reached out and said she wanted to interview me about the prison system, and I said are you sure I was only in for 10 months? I mean, don't you want to hire some, like your interview, some guy who was in for 10 years for murder or something. And, and she said to me, she's like, Damien, uh, you're the first person I found who's willing to talk about it. And I've been told that a few times since. And I'm like, like, well, I, you know, somebody's got to talk about it because, uh, you know, who's going to, you know, believe like the, some of the things that, that go on in there, like people just have no idea that's so far removed from, from regular society. And, yeah, I just feel like I, you know, not only do I want to talk about it, I feel like I have this obligation to, you know, just kind of educate people on on, on the system and, and how it works or how it doesn't work rather. And, and, and yeah, I'm just something I've been pretty passionate about the last like four or five years. And I think I will be for, for quite a while. Yeah. Once again, the same for me is I, I do feel like I was kind of given these gifts of, you know, being able to articulate well and things like that. And if I don't use them to kind of be in service to others or benefit others in a positive way, what am I using these gifts for? What's their purpose mm. if I'm not doing them for good? And then yeah, like that, I've, I've had similar stories as well of like, you know, attempts at, at intimate relationships, romantic pursuits and things of that nature. And I'm very open about my criminal past and people always tell like, you're, you're really open about that. And I'm like, yeah, why would I not be? my exact philosophy yeah I, I was actually um i i didn't but i um you know i i, I kind of joke with friends I, I was gonna like get back on tinder and have my profile like you know single disease free and not on parole anymore you know and yeah you know, if i if i get it back i'll probably put that there for a laugh but yeah i um people are like wow you you're really open about it and um i mean i want to be open about it but also like you know I, i'd rather people hear it from me than than google me and then you know so it's like i'd be open about it anyway but i just feel like it's like the the ethical and the smart choice to make anyway yeah yeah definitely i mean uh, going back a little bit my crime was you know burglary like i said but i actually never entered the house and i voluntarily left when i realized um because my ex's brother like answered the door and he was like i don't want you to come in and he just kept repeating that my ex wasn't there and i was like i don't care if she's here i just want my stuff back but at trial you know they they said stuff and they and they put it you know, in, in like the first searches and things online that it's like, like I'm like a violent criminal because I have a background in martial arts. So they're like, I know how to hurt people. <laughs> and I was like, that's not, that's not what that means. That's like, that's for defense and protection of other people, you know, that can't defend themselves. And they're, they're making me out to be some type of weapon that I was like going around harming people. And I'm like, I've never, you know, aggressively like started a fight or hit anybody. For any reason, <laughs> so I was like, it, it's such a weird experience to kind of be told who you are and then yeah. have that. I've been, uh, I, I take news reports for the grain of salt now because I just, I realized like, um, oh yeah, that, 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 you know, sensationalized and very biased news coverage came out when I was arrested. And then, but when I wrote my novel, like, um, I got a lot of news coverage when it first came out. Um, 
yeah, it, it's it's the title is Scarred. If ever, if anyone wants to search for it, it's published by Tenth Street Press, and they're actually based in Seattle. But like, um, uh, when it came out, like, oh, I was getting all these this news coverage, and these journalists were choosing to portray me as well. The the, the magistrate actually called me a vigilante, yeah, and then then that kind of gave me like the idea. I wrote a novel about a vigilante who got, takes a lot further than I did, and um, but uh, yeah, the the, all the journalists who were covering my novel, they yeah portray me as this you know like um kind of anti-hero who targeted a sex offender. And and it, it occurred to me that like um the journalists who wanted to demonize me and the journalists who wanted to portray me as as um you know some kind of you know um kind of mis misguided or it's like maybe misguided but like well-intentioned vigilante, they're using the same information and it's just like do I want to spin him and make him look crazy or spin him and make him look like you know um you know tragic you know, anti-hero or something. But uh yeah and it's like now I kind of take news reports with a grain of salt because I'm like you can you know, you portray something any way you want to. It's just like what's gonna sell newspapers and yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, that's that's basically our interview and I, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, is there anything else that you want to say? Any final words you want to leave us with? Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? Um, I'm, I will mention uh, briefly, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of activism, uh, prison-related activism since I got out. And um, one thing I actually do is I um, I do a lot of activism for an American inmate. Um, his name is Bobby Bostick. He um, he was sentenced to 241 years for two armed robberies he committed when he was 16 back in 1995. It's just ridiculous. Like again, um, yeah, he's serving the longest sentence ever given to a child in Missouri for non-homicide offences. And um, there's obviously a bit more to it than that. But yeah, that's the basics. And um, I. I've been doing a lot of lobbying for him and um, I run his Instagram account and a friend of mine in Europe, in Moldova, um, runs the Twitter. We both have the same handle at Free Bobby Bostick. And if you want to check that out and see how you can help, uh, like undo his like ridiculous and unconstitutional sentence, that'd be great because yeah, uh, everyone kind of finds it a bit funny. Like the, the two main, there's a lot of people campaigning for Bobby, but the two people kind of spearheading things are a guy in Australia and a woman in Europe. And you know, we're not even in the uh <laughs> anywhere near him and we're, we're we're doing a lot of activism for him but yeah check out his case if you can and um yeah just see us on instagram on twitter and um you can find out more from there really if you want to definitely again thank you so much for doing that work that's one thing that i know that would help a lot of people is just having a voice on the outside because uh, we don't you know they try so hard to take our voice away when we go in so i'm really yeah. glad you're doing that work yeah, that, that's um. Yeah, I, I originally wrote to him just because I, I read about his case and I thought he might want a pen pal. And he said, "Can, can you help me? Because I don't have people on the ground." And I was like, "You know, what? yeah, sure, I, I I can." And um, yeah, it's been a long journey over the last three years, but we're starting to get a bit of traction and attention. Uh, well, we've always gotten a bit of some, but yeah, it's it's starting to snowball and get a bit more momentum. So hopefully, um, something positive comes out of that for Bobby soon. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for the opportunity. It's 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 been good. Yeah. I would love to thank Damien and all the audience listening. We'll see you next time.